Billy Graham once said that uh, people in ministry never retire. They just change their pulpit. So uh, I have no plans of slowing down. I, um, my pulpit may be something completely different, driving a school bus or doing something like that. Who knows, you know? But in the meantime, I am here for you, and I love you, love this church, and love what God has done. And uh, the DNA of this church is so wonderful, and I thank God for it. Uh, I praise him for all that he's done. Last week, a gentleman asked me at lunchtime, just out of the clear blue, he said, what's one of the hardest things of being a pastor in this past year? And the first thing that came to my mind is death, because no one likes death. Death um, really touches our hearts when we lose an individual, especially somebody that's close to the congregation. And the second thing that's so difficult for me is the ability not to do hospital calls. And many of you have um, experienced that this year, maybe not a hospital call, but you've had an individual in the hospital, you're just not allowed to go there and be with them. And that's really difficult. Always pray over the phone and um, I thank God for that ability that uh, this week I've had that opportunity on two or three occasions to pray with people as they were in their hospital bed. But not uh, being there for them is hard. Last week, uh, our youth administrator spoke, and she did a wonderful job, Abby Vaughn, and I'm grateful for the, the work that she did and, and um, Philippians 4. And this morning, we continue that. But before we do so, I want to say welcome to those of you that are viewing today. And I suspect it's a, a few less because I see faces here this morning that I have not seen for a while. And I'm so happy to see each one of you that um, you've made your way back and that God has opened up the door for you to be with us. And the Lord bless each one of you. Our theme over these past few months has been that of restoration. And last week, as we looked at Philippians, the fourth chapter, we continued with that theme of restoration. We've all been part in a restoration project, as I say each week, making something that's old, new again, um, restoring something. And, and uh, the definition of the word is simple. It's to restore to uh, or an earlier condition as by repairing or remodeling. And the whole emphasis of Philippians, that fourth chapter, is uh, not only the fourth chapter, but the whole book of Philippians is that of restoration. That God wants to impart new vigor into our lives. He wants to revive us. He wants to make us new. And Paul makes it clear that God wants to restore our lives. That the Lord wants to restore the church. And you and I make up this wonderful church and the church with the capital C. But yet we need that new vigor. We need that new life. We need the touch of Jesus Christ, and we need repairs to be done in our lives. So today we continue that restoration journey with a, a key text in mind from the first chapter, the sixth verse of Philippians, where Paul writes, you can be confident of this. In other words, you can stake your life on this, that God who has begun a good work and each one of us will carry it on to completion until that day of Jesus Christ. I read this uh, past few weeks that statistics have been messed up concerning the average lifespan of individuals. Because of COVID, 
there's been an interruption in the statistics and our lives have been cut for some reason a year shorter when it comes to projecting the average lifespan. For example, in 2020, a woman was 81 and a half years to live. I think previous to that, it was 82 and a half. A man is 76 and a half, and some of you celebrate and said, man, I've gone past that. So uh, you can celebrate. I hate to tell you, you may be on borrowed time, according to statistics. But <laughs> the joy of the Lord is our strength, and we continue, and we, we move on, and we thank God for that. But uh, the question comes to my mind, why do women live longer than men? Well, I want to share a few things with you that prove the fact that women can, and they do live longer than men. For example, men are pretty creative. If you've got a project at home and you're painting a stairwell, they come up with some ideas, you know, where you just jam a, a stepladder in between the wall and the well and you get your job done. Or if um, you're painting a stairwell, you can get a couple friends to help you. You just uh, get a tall stepladder and you get your buddy to hold it for you and, uh, you know, why women live longer than men? It's because of the creativeness in men. Or if, um, if you don't have a lift and you need to work on your truck or your car, you simply put some uh, six by sixes or four by fours and, and get the job done. Uh, get it lifted up and, and uh, you can get under there and um, if, you, if, uh, if you're painting a high room, say a room like this, you run out of scaffolding, you just rent some stilts. Uh, you just don't want to back up and you want to make sure that you're an expert with these stilts because at high levels, uh, your wife could live longer than you on a case like this. Uh, or if uh, you, you need to lean on something, and many of you do, you just... Find what you can and, and lean on it. Um, I would not uh, say that this is the brightest thing to lean on and for you to take your shotgun out and do so, but uh, women do live longer than men. If you don't have a ladder, all you've got to do is go to the library and get a bunch of tables, and you can get to the height that you want to get to and, and just stack the tables on top of each other. And, or if you're working on a 10-story ledge, you need to get a couple friends just to come and stand on a board or a ladder so you can get yourself out where you need to work on the air conditioner. Women do live a little longer than men, and this could be some of the reasons. Shortly after um, looking at some of these things and, and um, giving consideration to them, I thought to myself, have you ever had a moment like this in your life? Have you ever had a time in your, your life where you're doing something and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world am I doing? Why am I doing this? Or how did I even think of doing it this way? This wasn't one of these drastic situations, but it was a few days ago that um, it was late in the evening and I was leaving the office and I noticed that there was a light out in my office. And my office has got kind of a cathedral ceiling. And so I'm wondering, how can I change this bulb? And what I did, I took a chair, a rolling chair, 
um, that also turned and I stood on it and I was trying to unscrew the bulb, but when I did that, the chair was turning too. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing there? It's gonna be a crash here and I'm gonna be laying on the floor when Beverly comes in in the morning and this is something that I probably should not be doing. It was shortly after this project that I started reviewing Philippians 4. I started thinking to myself as I was reading this end portion of Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'm thinking to myself, you know, all through time, there's been a lot of people that live a life that is sort of unstable, a life that the ground that they stand upon is unstable ground. And in today's passage, when we look at what Paul has said, the Philippian believers are on his heart. Paul is one who loves his church. Paul is one who wants to protect his church. Paul is an individual that is concerned about the circumstances that are around the church in Philippi and the uneven ground that they may be standing on. And he's concerned about the fact that there are individuals, there are events that would try to rob or steal their joy, try to rob or steal their happiness. And he wants to give them some practical advice as we look at the text this morning to overcome these situations that they face while standing on stable ground. He wants them to do things in a way that they are assured that the ground is stable. The passage this morning starts out in Philippians, the fourth chapter in verse number one. It could be that this text goes easily with the previous text that we read as we ended chapter three. But the scripture there says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and I long for, my joy and you are my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. When Paul thought of the Philippian co-workers that were in his life, it's evident that he felt joy, that they gave him joy. He genuinely loved them. And he very deeply was concerned about them. And they became to him like his family. And he longed to see them. And in a spiritual sense, our church is our family. In many ways, the people that sit around you here today are closer than some of your biological family members. The church is our family. And we have a heavenly father and we are spiritually connected as we come here to one another. Now, there's some of you that are visiting today. And the fact that you are here, it could be that you're traveling or you, you go to church elsewhere, but you're connected with the church family, with a capital C. And this is an important part of your life. And we should think of each other as dearly loved brothers and sisters. In the days gone by, individuals in churches, and maybe so today, can still be referred to as brother or sister. Some of you have come out of environments like that. I just received a letter and the opening sentence was, Pastor, I don't know whether to refer to you as a brother or sister or pastor, but I write because in the earlier days when I went to church, we referred to each other as brothers and sisters. This COVID year 
has been a challenging year for many because of isolation. And isolation is not good. I had one individual tell me this morning who was here, said, I've been gone for 53 weeks. Isolation. Being at home is not like worshiping in a setting such as this. And those of you that are home today, I, I'm not discounting that because you must be wise and you must do what's best for your health and your family situation. We are all unique and we're in unique situations. But isolation is something that we do not enjoy. It's something that's not healthy in the long run. People are basically social creatures, most people. We need the companionship. And one thing that can steal our joy is that of isolation, not being around other people. You know, it's easier to stay in bed sometimes than it is to get out and go to church. And those are the days that many of us need to be with other people. We need to be around the body of Christ. We need to see others worshiping and be in that act of worship. We need a living, caring community where we can live life together. That's one of the wonderful things about a church family. And Paul experiences this kind of community in the church of Philippi so much that he refers to them as what? His joy and his crown. He looks at his congregation and those as his joy and crown. And Paul meant that he was proud to know them and his life was better because of them and because of the fellowship that he had with them. They were a source of joy to him, especially while he was awaiting trial. We can carry big burdens and some emotional burdens and some physical but there's something about being in the house of God and something to be about being around your fellow Christian friends that lifts your spirit. And the Philippians cared for, the church at Philippi cared for Paul. They sent him a caretaker, an Aphroditus. They sent him an individual to be there, not only to encourage him while he was in his cell, but to be there as a helper. And being part of a loving community is a good way to overcome sadness. Being part of a loving community is a good way to generate joy in our hearts and our life. Another thing that can zap your joy is when you fail and give in and that you do not stand firm. Paul didn't want his close friends and loved ones to lose the joy and the closeness of one another. And he didn't want the fellowship to be broken. You see, friendships can be fragile. They can become very fragile. They are to be treasured. And Paul didn't want the devil to find a crack and destroy the friendships that he had with that church in Philippi and to re restore the relationships that he had with the individuals. And in order to do so, he said, we've got to stand firm. We've got to stand on firm ground. We don't stand on stack tables. We don't stand on stilts on the top of scaffolding. We don't stand or sit underneath vehicles that have been lifted up by boards. But we must be on firm ground. And we do, uh, as we look at the church in Philippi, we see that it is a church that must be stable because they were being persecuted by the Romans. Paul knows that. They were being pressured by unsaved Judaizers. Paul knows that. 
they were being partitioned by division where false doctrine could come in. And Paul says, I want you to stand firm on the fact that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. I want you to stand firm on the strength that God gives you. So Paul reminds him that the Holy Spirit wants them to grow and to stabilize, be on firm ground, and to restore their lives. When I think of standing firm, what comes to my mind is my many visits to the UK when I would visit my children there, my grandchildren, when they lived in London and just in recent years. Because throughout London, we would visit various palaces. Those palaces were protected by guards. And the guards were interesting individuals, and we would watch the changing of guards. The guards were fully focused upon their duties. And it was important to stand firm for them because if just one soldier breaks and the enemy punches through the line, everyone is vulnerable because their back is exposed. And these guards are there to protect the dwelling that they stand around. And so Paul exhorts the church. He exhorts them to stand firm in the Lord and to be there so that when they're attacked, they have their bases and their footing in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther once said, he said, when you are told to lie, when you're tempted to cheat, when you're prone to doubt, when you're overcome by emotions, he said, I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor is it safe. Here I stand, he said. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Luther his conscience was tied in to the captive word of God. And he stood on God's word. He did not cast doubt when doubt was planted in his heart, but he stood firm on God's word and he chose God's word until his death. Paul now mentions, as we move on in the scripture, he mentions a couple women from the church there in Philippi and evidently they're having some problems because he says in verse 2 and 3, I plead with Yodia and also with Syndicate, I plead with them to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companions, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Apparently there's a conflict in the church between a couple ladies. These ladies have created a conflict that was serious enough that Paul mentions it in his letter. Not only does he mention it in his letter, this letter is intended to be read in a public setting. And there's a dispute that's taken place and Paul is pleading with both of these ladies so that they would reconcile that they would put away the differences and they would become like-minded. This was an important matter, especially in a small church. Church matters um, are very important because they can disrupt a church. I served as uh, district leadership for many years. And I can remember one situation that I was called upon in one of our small churches here in Southern Missouri District. 
The pastor happened to be a friend of mine who was a youth pastor the same time I was serving, and now he was pastoring this small church. He had accepted the church, and he called me because he didn't know if he had made a mistake. And so I went and met with him. He told me the story. He was preaching one morning, just as I am preaching, and there was a gentleman who kept raising his hand in the middle of the sermon. Now, maybe some of you have grown up in environments like this, but this was totally strange to this young pastor. And he went on to tell me that he tried his best to stick with his notes and to preach, but the hand kept going up. So finally, he acknowledged the man. And the man said out loud, I feel a song coming on. So that type of uh, verbiage was not understood by this young pastor. And he said, uh, I'll tell you what, he said, at the end of the service, you and I will meet and we'll talk. So he went on and preached a sermon and um, got to the end of the, the time and went out in the foyer and the whole deacon board was there to greet him. And they told him, they said, look, when this particular gentleman has a song coming on, you need to stop. And he needs to sing this song. And um, also they told him, you need to get rid of your iPad because that's of the devil and you shouldn't have your notes on it. So needless to say, he was in a different culture than he was used to. Now, I'm happy that there are not people here this morning that have a song coming on, because I probably would not know what to do. And I suspect that that is kind of um, an environment that some of you were raised in. When you had a song coming on, you get up and you sing it. In this particular situation, it created division in the church. And in today's text, not only would the joy between these two women be robbed, but there was a danger that the whole fellowship would be robbed of their joy. And Paul hits this head on. The way to protect themselves, because this problem could fracture within the church if it's not resolved, Paul addresses the issue. Interesting how he addresses it. He addresses it with the intent that this is how healing begins. Because the healing process cannot start if they do not acknowledge the problem. But Paul is very tactful in dealing with this issue. He doesn't take sides, but he encourages those who are close to the situation, get involved. He speaks to them as his companions in the work of Christ. Get started on the reconciliation. Paul doesn't point a finger at anyone. He doesn't blame an individual because... They're good friends and they're co-workers. He wants to encourage them. He values them for the work that they are working hard together and suffering and serving for the same mission. And he values them. You and I, I guess one of the takeaways from this, we should not fight with our co-workers, but value them because God values them. See the strengths in them. Recognize them. These two women who were in some type of a relational conflict. Maybe it was a ministerial conflict. I do not know. 
But we do know that these fighting females were women of influence. They're prominent church members. They're high-powered uh, Roman women for Jesus. And since they had worked with Paul in the case of the gospel, he respects them. And so Paul urges these disagreeing darlings to get on the same page and uh, live a life of, of harmony. And I thank the Lord for this message to us today because verse 3 points out that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, just like ours who are believers. Paul was pleading for unity within the church at Philippi because he knew that if this conflict didn't get settled, it could tear the church apart. And you know, another thing that's interesting as I look at this is a man by the name of Clements. His name shows up in this text. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture. But what I like here is there's equality. When we see the work of Christ, we see these ladies mentioned and we see a man mentioned. That they work together, the strengths come together. Now, moving on, the next point that we see here in Paul's letter in this fourth chapter in verse number seven is where he says, or verse number four, he says, rejoice. Here it is again, folks. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God will transcend all understanding and guard your hearts in your minds in Christ Jesus. One thing <clears throat> that we must understand is being joyful is a decision that we can make. We should not let others, <clears throat> we should not let other situations drive our future. If we do, we're in for a rough ride. <clears throat> we have to realize that we can determine our state of mind. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. We need to decide to rejoice. And he repeats it again. Remember I said Paul is a strong preacher. He's not afraid to repeat things over and over again. And this has shown up a few times, those of us who have journeyed through this book, that we must rejoice. And that can be hard. For some of you, you might say, wow, it's hard to rejoice. And some people feel like they failed at all. And Paul is going to show us now how you and I can rejoice, how you and I can protect the joy that we have in our hearts. First of all, Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is the only one factor in our life that never changes. And things are changing daily today. But the Lord is stable. He is that stable ground that we can stand on. The Lord is the one who never changes. He's constant. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today and forever according to Hebrews, the 13th chapter, the 8th verse. Not only is God constant, his love is constant. His love endures forever forever according to Psalms 136. So regardless of what we do or how we're feeling, if we're having a down day, an up day, we can understand that God is constant. His love is there and he cares for us, as the scripture says in the 139th Psalm. He cares so much for us that he knew us when we were made in our mother's womb, that when we were knit, 
He cares so much for you, so much for each one of us, that he gave his life for us. That's how much he loves us. And it's comforting to know, as it also says in verse number five, that he's very near us. He doesn't leave us. But Paul writes that he is near. It's comforting to know that. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ for every person that hears my voice today and believes. So we should celebrate God every day and be thankful for what God has done. We must rejoice in the Lord always because he is there. He is with us. Rejoice, not looking at our situations, but look at the Lord and think about the good things that God has done for us. And he values our life. Paul says, as he goes on, we need to act in gentleness. Wow, that could be difficult for some. That means when we encounter difficult people, when we encounter difficult circumstances, we shouldn't burst into fits of rage, publicly or privately, in our homes, just because we don't like what somebody did, or in public, we don't like what somebody said. And Paul encourages us to maintain our composure here, not lose control and respond with gentleness as the opposite of losing control so that people can see how calm, how cool, and how collective you are and the things of the Lord are handled in gentleness. Here, the word gentleness has the context of yielding to other people and not insisting on having our own way, but yielding to others. And if you are joyful, you don't have to force your will over other people. If we're joyful, we can encounter the great things that God has done for us and the great things that we can give to others. We don't have to force ourselves. And it's hard to have joy when you're selfish and always in conflict with other people. Let me say that again, because this may be important for some people who hear today that are not feeling well or you feel like you've lost your joy. It's hard to have joy when you are selfish and always in conflict with other people. Next thing we see is that Paul says that we should not be anxious about things that come along in life. Shouldn't be anxious about anything. Boy, that seems like a tall order. That seems like that's out of sight. To not be anxious about anything, how in the world is that possible? What I think Paul means is, is that we shouldn't be overcome by anxiety to the point that we can't function. Anxiety is something that happens in normal life. If you become anxious, don't feel down today because anxiety is kind of a, a warning light that happens. When you're driving your car, or you look at your dashboard and that warning light comes on, anxiety is a natural biological response where our bodies are telling us that something is happening and we need to pay attention to it. We need to give attention to it in a very special way. <clears throat> in St. Louis, Missouri, I was invited to a couple's house for dinner. This particular man was doing his residency at a hospital there. And he lived in an old building in downtown St. Louis. It was one of those buildings where you walk up to it, it had two doors. You had to make a decision which one was his. Two addresses, 
because there were two residents in the building. And so while we were eating dinner at his home, I was just observing and looking around, and I noticed that the heat ducts had wire over them. And uh, not chicken wire, it was just fine wire. Now, not too many of you people have wire over your heat ducts. So uh, I kind of, in an interesting way, I asked him, I said, hey, um, why do you have wire over your heat ducts? He said, well, the guy who lives next door, and we share the same um, build, we same, share the same basement, he uh, raises um, exotic snakes. And, um, um, and so the basement's full of snakes. And um, he, he said, Pastor, just pray that we don't lose electricity tonight because I have to go down there and um, when the electricity goes out, and the fuse box was the old type where you screw in a fuse. You, know, you remember those? It wasn't a flip switch. So he'd have to go down there and um, screw in a, a, a new fuse in the dark. And snakes could kind of navigate towards heat. And he gave me this whole story about how they can sense that there's heat in the room. And if there's a snake loose down there, it would come and, um, well, it'd be your friend for a while. So here I am, <clears throat> I'm a pastor, and I'm in his home, and if I become so overwhelmed that I cease to function while I'm there in his house, because I'm not a real fan of snakes, uh, then there's a problem. And giving in to anxiety and letting fear overcome us could reveal a lack of faith. And either that, the, the host is, would think I didn't like her food, and anxiety is like that. Anxiety can be counterproductive and self-centered and a sign of lack of faith. And Paul speaks to them about that. And some signs of anxiety could be unwanted thoughts. When you're anxious, you can't sleep. When you're anxious, you could always be tired. Anxious people sometimes can't focus. They can't eat. Or anxious people overeat. Hard to breathe instead of, you know, living a life of relaxation. And Paul says that a better response is to bring what? In this text, he says, bring everything to God in prayer. I did pray at that meal. I prayed underneath my breath. And when we need to bring it to God, then he can give us peace. And so that we don't focus on the negative we focus on the positive. And when we pray, we need to believe that there's nothing too hard for God. And I thought, God, that wire is going to hold any reptile back from coming into this room. And just as those people slept there every night, they lived in that house with peace in their heart as long as the electricity didn't go off. So why does God do this for us? Give us this peace. Well, according to verse 7, so that our hearts and our minds will be guarded. He gives us this peace so we're guarded. And God wants to help us, and he doesn't want us to fall. He loves his children, and he wants to guard our hearts. And I'm thankful that God guards our hearts. Now, lastly, and we must close this text, Paul gives us some real practical guidance here for directing our minds and we look at uh, verses 8 and 9. Finally, 
Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whether you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So we hear Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord always, act in gentleness, don't be anxious, and now he says, let's, let's control our thoughts. Let's control our thoughts like with good qualities. Your mind is like the rudder of a ship. My mind is like the rudder of a ship. I used to do a lot of sailing in Green Bay and day, day sailors or big sailboats, but the rudder is so interesting to take that 35 or 40 foot vessel and just uh, whether it be pedestal steering or just the rudder and how it controlled that boat. We need and must discipline our minds. This takes time and it takes effort to discipline our thoughts. It takes restoration in our spiritual life and often our minds will wander. But it's good to think about things that Paul says about truth, truthfulness, dependable, noble things, to worthy of respect and honor, righteous things, those things that are pure, those things that are holy. He also says that we can learn from one another. How are you living your life? How am I living my life? We shouldn't pick apart each other's faults, but find something good about each person and respect them for that. And when we focus on the good and sincerely love and respect each other, God grants us the peace that we seek in our hearts. Thank God for that. You know, with the normal thief, as you sit here today, some of you are very comfortable because your homes are protected. You have alarm systems, you have cameras, you can check what's going on in your house right now where you sit. And some of you that are at home today are so comfortable because with normal thieves, we can protect ourselves, including locks and alarms. And we find here that Paul says there's a way of protecting ourselves from joy robbers. Those that want to steal from us the joy we have. And we can build a wall around our joy. And Paul reminds us that there's a better way, and that way is Jesus Christ. If you do not have Christ in your life today, I know that you're suffering. If you don't have Christ in your life today, you can lack peace. And the peace of the Lord is available to us today. Let's make it part of our life as we accept Christ. Because whatever you magnify in your life, you will multiply. Whatever you magnify, you will multiply. And the Apostle Paul gives us some great advice. I'm going to close with a story about a gentleman that I met when I was a youth pastor. He called me and he wanted to come and do a concert at the church. His name was Mylon Lefebvre. He came from a family of quartet singers. Mylon had a group called Broken Heart. And when I heard his story, I heard that he was born into a gospel singing family. He played the guitar for his family as they would sing and as they traveled. As a teenager, he was expelled from a Christian school that he went to. So he was back on the road with his family once again as a teenager. At 17 years old, Mylon went into the army. 
While he was in the army, he sat down, this was in the early 60s, and he wrote a song one evening. He was in Jackson, South Carolina. He hitchhiked 600 miles to Memphis, Tennessee, because his family was singing at a quartet convention. He arrived at that convention, his family was happy to see him, and he, that night, he sang the song that he wrote. And the song was a song that uh, took him 20 minutes, he said, to write it. The title of the song was Without Him. Without Him, I can do nothing. Without Him, I'd surely fail. He didn't realize, but in that audience that night, uh, while he was singing, that Elvis Presley was sitting in the audience at that quartet convention. At the close of the convention that evening, Elvis wanted to meet Mylon. Elvis was right in the middle of recording an album. The title of it was How Great Thou Art. And he asked Mylon, can I sing that song? And as he got permission, he did so. The album came out. That year, over 100, 100 artists recorded that song without him. Mylon told me he was making $84 a month in the army. He never dreamed that his royalty check that would come in was over $90,000 without him. But the message of the song is one that says, without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we'd surely fail. Without him, we'd be drifting like a ship without a sail. The Apostle Paul says, we must have Jesus Christ in our life to have the peace to have a heart touched, to go without anxiety, and to have the peace of the Lord when it comes to the trials in our life. Let's stand together. I think you know this song. It's a simple song. Let's sing it in closing this morning.